HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Subscribe today at southernfarmandgarden.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Farm Report. This is Charlie Comer. I'm guest hosting this week. And we are very excited to be joined live in studio by Sarah Gray Miller, Editor-in-Chief of Modern Farmer, as well as Maria Rojas. Uh, Maria is a Program Manager in the Farmers Program at Grow NYC. This week we are discussing an article from the spring issue of Modern Farmer. The title of the article is The High Cost of Cheap Labor, and it is written by Brian Barth, but... Uh, Sarah Gray was very involved in the research and the development and, of course, the editing of the article. So, Sarah Gray, could you start out by giving us some background on this this article and how you decided to take this in-depth look at the history of farm labor in the U.S.? Absolutely. I was moderating a panel of farmers in the Hudson Valley, um, and it was fascinating. To my left were all young, hip kids who had obviously fled Brooklyn and had farms, and to my right were these old school, craggy dudes, you know, born and raised in upstate New York. And um, the notion of farm labor came up. And it was interesting. All the young kids on the left talked about woofers and interns and all the dyed in the wool upstate New York farmers talked about how they did not want Americans working on their farms. They were lazy. They texted. They didn't understand hard labor. Um, And I, I was really kind of taken aback. And it occurred to me that that was an issue that the magazine hadn't covered and that I certainly didn't know enough about. So I reached out to Brian, who himself interned on an organic farm in California. Um, And that was well over a year ago before the presidential election. And we started looking into it then. And then, of course, the importance of doing it um, ramped up pretty quickly in November. 
Right. And then even beyond a year ago, the, the article starts out with a great history of the policies related to farm labor in the U.S. and so, sort of how we got to where we are today. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of a really bad boyfriend to Mexico, right? You know, when we need them. Um, hey, come on over, help us out, right? What's up? You know, <laughs> and then the moment that we start to get insecure, say the Great Depression, um, we suddenly you can call it expatriated or repatriated, since some were actually citizens. Um, at least half a million Mexicans. World War II labor shortages. Oh, guess what, guys? Come on back and help us out. Um, and we've done that time and time again. Anytime we feel insecure about our own jobs and our own economy, um, you know, we're all ready to build a wall. Yeah. And, you know, in the history, um, in the history of the United States, like you've said, there's been a lot of back and forth. And I think in the legislation, um, in 1938, the Federal Labor Standards Act granted time and a half, um, the right for time and a half to all workers except agricultural workers. Um, and so there's been just a long tradition of injustice. Um, and I, But I wanted to hear about some of the highlights that you um, included in the article about movements fighting against the, for far, farm worker rights. Yeah, I mean, of course, the big one is Cesar Chavez, um, starting back in the early 60s. Um, really made the most progress, um, which is why California farm workers are allowed to unionize and bargain collectively. And then more recently in the 90s, um, the Coalition of Immokalee Farm Workers, uh, which came out of Florida, and all that unrest in the tomato industry there. And what they've done is really genius. They sort of realized that fighting the boss wasn't going to help them out. So they went and galvanized consumers and got consumers involved protesting. It actually started with Taco Bell on a college campus in Florida. And since then, they, they have really won concessions from Walmart, Whole Foods, Taco Bell, Trader Joe's, a number of grocery stores who have agreed to pay a decent price for the tomatoes they use. Could you speak a little bit more? That's certainly a great example of organizing in a regional level, but could you speak a little bit more about um, production in Immokalee, Florida, and the kind of tomato, um, the contacts that you had through researching this article um, related to that kind of um, certification, the fair food certification? Yeah, I mean, they're horror stories. Um, and they're not just limited to Florida, but the, they're horror stories. You know, people being paid by the bucket, not an hourly wage, um, not even getting the meager per bucket fee they were promised, taking buses in, stuck out in the hot sun. Wages are often denied. Um, and of course, undocumented immigrants are very unlikely to speak up and fight back for, for obvious reasons. Um, so by protesting, and it's really just a penny per pound, that's what they've asked. And it started very local, but it's spread not just throughout the nation, but it's also international now. And I think um, in the article, you also mentioned that this is something that's not just happening in California. And California actually has um, the strictest, you know, actually adheres to the federal law um, in providing rights to farm workers. But in, in New York State, we've also, um, you know, Margaret Gray talks about um, some of the issues that are happening. I would love to hear some of the regional um, 
Yeah. I mean, I think one of the great ironies with with what she discovered in interviewing all these farm workers in the bucolic Hudson Valley, right? They're the ones who are getting all the food to New York City, is I think um, people like me, um, we think we're doing the right thing when we buy organic, locally grown, a small family-owned farm. Of course, the truth of that is when you're when you're not mechanized and you're organic, humans have to do the work of machines and chemicals. Um, so it's really a situation that's rife for abuse. And ultimately, you know, the the blame comes down to us consumers. We don't pay enough for our food. It's baked into the American system. Um, I was shocked to learn that when you look at our food expenditures as a percentage of sort of household expenditures, Americans spend only 6.4% of their income on food. That compares with more than 10% for most European Union countries, um, you know, and in places like Southeast Asia and Africa, they're spending 40 to 50%. So we've so devalued our food, and, and it's hard to get mad at the farmer. You know, when we talk to farmers, they say, hey, you know, pay more for a tomato, and we'll happily offer fair wages and benefits. But what you were saying earlier is very right about the labor laws. Our country has exceptions for agriculture. Um, agricultural workers are not guaranteed a minimum wage on small farms. Um, they don't get a day off. In most states, they are not allowed to unionize and bargain collectively. Um, and then, of course, if someone's undocumented, nobody's paying into a Social Security fund or anything of that nature. In the response to the article, which was, uh, it's from the article, from the, the issue that came out last month, the spring issue, how, has that resonated with readers, uh, the message, in toward the end of the article, you talk about the, exactly what you just mentioned, the percentage of our income we spend on food, and the fact that Americans need to understand we need to spend more on food. Um, has that has that been part of the response, or how has the engagement been um, with readers? You know, it's interesting. Before the magazine came out, um, I was so outraged after the election um, that we printed up T-shirts with stats that said "Immigrants Feed America" I on have the one. front. <laughs> Went to the airport the other. They're morning. awesome, and um, <laughs> yeah, and on the back they're just stats. I mean, even the most conservative figure says that half of all field workers in this country are undocumented. At least seventy percent are immigrants. So obviously, if we build a wall, um, you know, if we deport everyone, we're going to have a real problem. So we started with the T-shirt and put it up on social media, and I put myself up on social media wearing it. Um, and I was very, very swiftly attacked. Um, I was told to leave the country. I was called a, a traitor, but it wasn't spelled T-R-A-I-T-O-R. It was spelled as in Trader Joe's. Um, I was also referred to as a minority supremacist, which is fine. I'll take that, you know. Um, but what was interesting is that feedback was happening while Brian and I were working on the piece. Um, and I was able to see what people didn't know. So, so many people kept saying, well, they should get a visa. They should get a visa. Well, that's not the way the H-2A visa program works in this country. It's domestic employers who petition and get the visa um, and then go out to private labor contractors um, who basically then source farm workers primarily from from south of the border. Um, and the reaction, I think most Americans didn't know that. I think they didn't know how that system worked. 
Um, and since the article was published, we've actually gotten a much, much, much more positive response. Um, and, and a pretty civilized debate on Instagram, at least. On Facebook, they still want to put me in prison or deport me, but... Um. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> well, it, it is really interesting because I, I just know for me, from my perspective, I I am a practitioner in this industry and I can, I guess, be a little wonky or nuanced about the way I discuss these things. So we, Marie and I um, did an interview about a month ago uh, about immigration, largely focused on... Uh, farm workers in the dairy industry because it was um, a woman from the Cornell Farm Worker Program, the director of the Farm Worker Program, and New York State is largely a dairy industry. Of course, there's seasonal labor needs here as well. Um, so it's it is really valuable for us to have media and have strong communicators boil down those statistics like the t-shirt uh, you know the immigrants feed america t-shirt says on the back 72 percent of you know america yeah. the, the industry is is immigrant labor um so what what are some of do you have any other perspectives on how we should talk about h2a how we should you know one of one of the examples we discussed at the last interview was um the fact that there's this idea to make H2A uh, available for dairy farms as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's year round labor. Um, and I think that just even the fact that people don't understand that you milk cows all year, I mean, by and large, <laughs> milk cows all year, a couple few times a day, like, um, versus you only pick tomatoes a few months out of the year. Yeah. Um, what, what are some ways that people who are in the industry who, you know, largely listen to shows like this, um, how can we more effectively communicate this? You know, wow, that's a really good question because I'm in a weird way, I'm the opposite, right? I'm sort of my reader. I'm the person who wants to shop at the farmer's market and do the right things. Right, and but, I, I can't not, like I had to take 10 minutes to ask you that question. Like, I can't <laughs> not qualify. I'm like, well, actually, actually. <laughs> so. You know, I'm a concerned consumer and I think I'm guilty of what a lot of modern farmers readers are guilty of and, and maybe some some listeners of this show which is I have these hard and fast sort of beliefs, but they're not necessarily <laughs> backed up by reporting. And what's great about this job is I can actually devote a full year with a reporter writer to getting these answers. Um, and I would say the H2A program and the way it works was the biggest wake up call for me. You know, when I realized that we are literally importing labor the way we would import a product and that when those workers arrive here, they they can only work for the employer who got the visa. It's it's indentured servitude, basically. You know, if that employer doesn't treat them well, if that employer doesn't have the work, which sometimes happens, they can't go get another job. Um, they can't complain. I think the system is very broken. And I was also surprised to learn that even though the numbers of these visas has they've grown steadily over a decade, in no one year have they covered ten percent of available farm jobs. Mm -hmm. That's shocking. So that, I mean, that really reveals a problem. Of course, there are undocumented immigrants working on farms. But the year round versus seasonal thing is a really good point. Or even the longevity of, I guess the reason it's challenging is Maria and I or people in the field would know a lot of different stories. And we've 
worked with so many different types of farms. Um, I know my first farming job um, was at a certified organic vegetable farm in New Jersey, and I was one of the few employees that was not um, a farm worker. And um, the staff had been there for over a dozen years. You know, they... So it's it's interesting that that's also seasonal. It's it's just challenging and trying to characterize. There are there's longevity, there's value in some um, situations. Of course, there are negative examples as well. So I guess that's that's the main thing we're trying to always understand is how we show that there is meaningful work and there are bad actors. <laughs> yeah. And how do we make progress? You know, this, this has gone around and around and around. Uh, this, this, these industry standards have gone around and around for decades and we're, we're not really moving forward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, I, there's not like a direct yeah. answer to that because so it is a giant conundrum. I mean, I, I sort of feel like the best we can all do and we're obviously all devoted to doing it is to keep educating people. Um, you know, I was shocked, and I still get this definitely um, on social media, when the fact that we think that Americans want these jobs, um, they don't. There are so many studies that, that show that. The one that really struck me was this 15-year study in North Carolina um, where they looked at all the state's unemployment agencies. And of the farm jobs offered... Um, it was 0.01% of unemployed people even agreed to be referred to have those interviews. Of those, 97% were hired. So almost all of them were hired. Less than half bothered to show up for the first day of work. And 0.004% finished out the season in the year with the highest number of citizens finishing out the season. When you look at that, and it's 15 years, uh, you just... How can you make that argument that that we want these jobs? We we don't. And what you were saying about working on a farm, Brian said this, and we also talked to some farmers who are doing the right thing. Um, and they said that it doesn't matter what they do, right? They try to offer English as a second language to their immigrant farm workers. They try to get the college-educated interns to work in the fields. And that integration just doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, and many um, of our farmers are also struggling because they, they're sort of forced into um, working with unpaid labor, um, which wouldn't be immigrant labor. And majority of that is really just college-educated, edu- um, you know, 20-something-year-olds. Um, but that's also not a viable option, of course. So wherever, wherever you look, it's, there's sort of another barrier to cross for these farmers. Um, and I think that H2A is really interesting. I've had um, multiple farmers ask me in the past two years about H2A because they're facing such labor shortages. Um, and H2A is one of those issues where across the board, you will people, they can sort of come together because farmers have a lot of problems with the program, but farm worker justice activists also have a lot of problems. So um, I'm wondering if you could or I guess I'm not wondering, I just wanted to say how exciting it is to hear um, H2A really laid out in a, in a digestible form because I, I see it in the media starting to be portrayed as a solution. Again, visas, um, but visas are, what, what are these visas really? So 
I guess just thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. We There was another study that we looked at. I got pretty wonky myself on the topic, you know, for, for the better part of the last year. But, you know, the American Farm Bureau, which is a pretty conservative organization, um, they did a study where they looked at four different scenarios. Um, and they decided that the Trump scenario, which is pure enforcement, um, would truly result in a crisis. Um, massive shortages. You know, I don't know if I'm going to remember the exact numbers, but shortages of oh, a net loss of 30 to 40 percent of vegetable and fruit revenue in the coming years. Um, they they also looked at other policies, and what they recommended was to revamp the H-2A system entirely, but also offer a clear path to citizenship. And it, a conservative agricultural you know, bureau is saying that. I, I think that makes sense. I mean, to not give people any path to citizenship is nuts. And, of course, right now people are incredibly vulnerable because of Obama's executive order. Um, DACA, which allowed people who arrived in this country before age 16 to get renewable two-year work visas. Well, those people gave the government all their personal information and their fingerprints, and now they're scared to death of what's going to happen to them. Well, Maria, can you speak a little bit more about work that you've done at GrownYC and research that's been done about labor at the organization? Yeah, um, I'm happy to provide a little bit of the farmer perspective, at least the the local farmers that I work with who are primarily selling at the farmer's market. Um, And in particular, there's um, um, the FCAC, which is the Farmer and Community Advisory Committee, uh, which is made up of farmers and community, you know, consumers like you or myself. Um, And they really wanted to look at what other states with similar economies, agricultural economies, were doing, uh, specifically looking at time and a half, which I mentioned earlier. Um, And they found that, yeah, California is the only one that's really adhering to the law. Um, Other states are providing time and a half, but it's really very restricted. So um, it would happen during times of the year, um, you know, that are not really matching with the heaviest harvest. Um, and so we then took that information and and polled our farmers. Um, we got data on their uh, practices, their labor practices, um, their gross revenue, and looking at what part of that was labor, um, and then modeled what time and a half would do to these farms. And, you know, what we found is really that they would have to really double, it would double their cost. Um, and even accounting for what the amount, the increased labor um, that would be happening or, or you know, c- accounting for more revenue, it would still not be able to make up for that, which would mean maybe more mechanization, which is really hard in a small farm, in a diversified farm, because yeah. you can't just buy a bean picker, you need to buy a bean picker and then, you know, all the other things. And so, um these farms would not be able to survive as we as we want them. Um, but the other really interesting piece that we found is that the farmers are, at least the farmers that answered our survey, are already paying at least 50% above minimum wage. Um, so that was sort of an interesting piece. And, and just I really think that farm, local farmers are trying to reconcile some of these things themselves. And it's really hard in a system that from the beginning has um, sort of pushed this imbalance. 
It's also interesting because that kind of survey group um, is about a potential of about 200 or over 200 farms. That would be a real mix of the types of farmers you're talking about. There's There are the, the farms that have been selling at green markets since it started over 40 years ago that are traditional multi-generational farms. And then there's also the, you know, um, college educated, you know, <laughs> bleeding <Certainly>. hearts. <laughs> we, we train them. <laughs> <laughs> we accept all. <laughs> and and so that's what's also really interesting is you know taking that sample set and seeing how it impacts even just through, throughout the northeast um, labor of all different types of farms. Yeah, and I should say that our program also um, has been training immigrant um, immigrant farmers who have experience from their home countries or who were farm workers, um, to start their own businesses. And I know that you talk about this in the article. Um, again, about it was, Alba? Yeah, about yeah. Alba. So I would love to hear about some of the projects that are helping um, bring equity to these farmers. Well, I think Alba is a big one um, out in California, and it really sort of serves as an incubator for immigrant farmers who really want to own um, their own organic farms. And we have a great success story in Javier Zamora, um, who got subsidized uh, loans to get land through ALBA and is now farming on more than 200 acres that he owns himself. Um, And because he's a Mexican immigrant who was undocumented until 1986 when amnesty was granted to so many people, um, he he treats his workers well. He's really paying it forward. I think that program is incredibly important. I think the most important thing is the consumer recognizing the role that they play. You know, we can't just point the finger at the government. We can't point the finger at the farmers. It's up to us. And it doesn't take a whole lot. I mean, that Immokalee formula, it was getting the purchasers of those tomatoes to pay a penny more per pound. And that was enough to make a massive difference. So, you know, really... Looking like their label is fair food. There are certification programs out there in the same way that something can be certified organic, and people need to keep an eye out for those. How should consumers speak to the actual companies about, you know, you mentioned a number of examples of companies that have worked with Coalition of Mockley Workers. Um, what what do you think, going back to the social media example, too, um, is, is that way one way to pressure or is, you know, how, how do you show that this is something important? I think social media is the best way to do it. I mean, whoa, what was what airline was it? Some girl wore leggings and got kicked off, and it was all over the place. I mean, it takes one tweet sometimes to really galvanize a very large group of people. Um, I think that is the ideal way. And, of course, lending your support to these existing organizations like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And Maria, could you tell us a little bit more about some of, going back to the Alba example, mm-hmm. the farms here in New York City that you've worked with, who, you know, where, where they're selling, um, what kind of products they're growing, and what kind of support you're providing? Specific, just all our farms, or specifically the beginning farmers that we work with? Right, and, and immigrant farmers. Yeah, well, they, um, I think we found that they for the most part, are incredibly successful. I think, um, obviously, if you talk to farmers about why they're hiring um, immigrant labor, they'll tell you they're skilled workers. Um, 
they work hard. You know, they're deeply committed. They also um, tend to really build a network around them and support each other. And I think that's what we've seen with our farmers. Um, they are, you know, it's, it's really exciting to see them grow. And, and a lot of them started before I got to the program, but every year they're continuing to um, expand. They, you know, they do care about uh, treating their workers right. Um, but I have to tell you that even... Um, one of the Mexican growers that I work with is thinking about H2A because they're, despite the fact that they speak Spanish and that, you know, they have more of a network um, of immigrants in this country, it's still really hard to find labor for everybody. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess I, I want to go back to where we are right now since the, since the article was published and some of the most recent changes since the new administration have, um, have come on. You, you mentioned that you researched this article for a year um, and weren't really anticipating um, some of the policies that have <laughs> gone forward. So, um, you know, what, what do you think regarding ideas about the border wall and um, <laughs> some of the the statistics that you found of you know it's it, two sides of the coin right on the one hand I've been shocked by all the things that have been happening um, and in working on the article something radical happened every day you know I had to caveat it up to the moment we printed it because I didn't know if Trump would overturn DACA. You know, everything had to be as of press time or while you're reading <laughs> this. Um, but then again, so far, we don't have that wall. We still have DACA. So it's, you know, it's almost an everyday sort of thing. I don't think I've ever had to, I mean, it's a quarterly magazine, Modern Farmer. <laughs> I don't think I have ever had to follow the daily news. I have like seven different Trump Google <laughs> alerts <laughs> set up, um, you know, and I'm really just watching it. I mean, I think the the thing that's most upsetting to me is, is the fear that I see in the immigrants um, in this country and, and the racism and xenophobia that obviously was lying dormant in the United States, but now it seems to be amped up, and that's incredibly upsetting. Agreed, agreed. Um, well, we, we need to take a little break, um, so we will be right back with Sarah Gray Miller of Modern Farmer. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Each issue features stories about food history, seasonal recipes, artisanal products, and the amazing people who bring it to your table. Packed with stunning photography, the content is fresh and educational. Southern Farm and Garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers, gardeners, wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today to southernfarmandgarden.com. 
Foodtank.com names Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow, praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. All right, welcome back. So we are continuing our conversation about the article from the spring issue of Modern Farmer, The High Cost of Cheap Labor, and we are joined with Sarah Gray Miller, editor-in-chief for Modern Farmer. So one thing we wanted to be sure to discuss, going back to this consumer theme and how consumers can stay involved and have ownership over this issue, are the various certifications and labels that consumers can look for in the stores, not only talking to the individual businesses or engaging in social media, but also at retail when they're shopping. So Sarah, could you tell us a little bit more about the uh, features, uh, the certifications feature? Yeah, of course. You know, we've talked a lot about the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and their label is Fair Food. But in addition to that, there's also the Food Justice Certified label, which is from the Agricultural Justice Project. And then there's also Responsibly Grown Farm Worker Assured, which is from the Equitable Food Initiative. Those are the three main labels to look for. So, and what do these mean and what do they signify? We talked about how the Coalition of Immokalee Workers were asking for one more penny per pound of tomatoes. What are some of the practices behind these certifications? You can, you can rest assured that these workers are being treated fairly. Immokalee is a great thing. They, they actually, on every farm, they oversee worker commissions. So the people who agree, the companies who agree to pay that penny more per pound, don't just agree to pay the penny more per pound. They sign on and also agree to an entire code of conduct and management. That's great. I know that I um, promote uh, the Agricultural Justice Project a lot to our farmers. Um, And it takes me, but it also takes a lot of, or it doesn't really take me. I'm a very small part of that. What it really takes is the consumers. Um, So, again, it's so excited to see these getting some some more time um, out in the media and really hope that consumers will start to ask their farmers at the farmer's market um, about them because that's how we first got to organic. That's how we pushed the needle forward. Great. Um, well, everybody can read the article online. It's on modernfarmer.com. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit more. And also, of course, they can get the issue, the print issue with beautiful photos. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. It is worth it. <laughs> it is. There's... Um, and but I wanted to hear a little bit more about what's going on um, with what you guys are working on. Are you going to continue covering some some of these more policy based issues, um, or, or other types of um, justice and, and access issues? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I would say if there's an upside to what's happening right now in the United States is that we're galvanized. Um, I'm currently working with Brian Barth again on a piece about subsidies and commodity crops and how that started. 
I mean, I think it's so easy, again, to point the finger, big ag, big ag. Well, there's a reason farmers are growing corn and soybeans and wheat. So how did that get started? How baked in is it? Is it possible to fix it? Um, What would that take? Um, We are also looking at the best and worst senators and representatives um, on the ag committees in those respective chambers. Um, Another thing I'm excited about, because it is so fun, where I'm just like, I throw these terms around, but I'm like, wait, what is it really? Mm -hmm. And what would happen if we got rid of it? Is it even possible to get rid of subsidies? I don't know. I'm learning. (laughs) Um, I'm also working on a really interesting piece about the history of 4-H. Love it. (laughs) And it turns out that that's related to subsidies because they were sort of, it was basically this attempt to get children interested in scientific innovation, you know, um, which can mean all sorts of hybrids, GMOs, all that kind of stuff, to both educate the parents and then to grow up to be farmers themselves. They were truly the army for a lot of this New Deal legislation, like subsidies. Um, I found out that agricultural extension agents back in the 30s were spending 30 to 40 percent of their time on youth development programs. So, I mean, it does all sorts of good, but Mm -hmm. whoa, it it was such a governmental indoctrination system. So that's been really fascinating. Wow. Well, it's also interesting as we talk about, you know, going back to Americans not wanting to work in agriculture. Um, I'm I'm excited about youth development programs to keep people engaged in the industry. Um, But it's, you know, it's also been a challenge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that's getting better, though. I really do. I think, you know, I was talking to someone that everybody used to say chefs are the new rock stars. And it feels like right now farmers are the new rock stars. (laughs) Well, well, we'll we'll try to keep it up. Yeah, and if, and if we could pay them like rock stars, that would be great. Well, yeah. <laughs> I know. How come rock stars never get paid well? <laughs> Wait a second. I mean, I guess rock star, rock stars get paid well. But. <laughs> All right. Well, um, where can people follow your content and, and stay engaged with Modern Farmer? Of course, at modernfarmer.com. Um, the magazine is on newsstands nationwide, um, especially at Whole Foods, where I imagine um, these listeners shop. You can follow us on Twitter on Instagram, and we're also on Facebook. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Green Miller and Maria Rojas for joining us today. And uh, please stay engaged with Heritage Radio Network, heritageradionetwork.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 